0: Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home.
1: woman, behold your son. That language can seem abrupt to us. As at the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus addresses his mother not as Mary or his mother, but as woman. Of course, the church fathers saw it wasn't disrespectful at all, but rather an acknowledgment of Mary's archetypal significance as the new Eve, as the true woman. They love to draw out all the implications of that relationship between Eve and Mary, and I'll do the same thing. Seeing them as prototypes of two types of freedom. We Americans are um, part of a distinctively modern culture. And one of the signs of that is that we love freedom as choice. Freedom means I choose. I determine myself on the basis of no internal or external constraint, I decide what to be, what to do. You want to see a pure expression of that? Read the 1992 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in the matter of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. There's a breathtaking phrase in that decision where our Supreme Court says it belongs to the very nature of liberty to decide the meaning of one's own existence. And of the universe. Oh, that's all I guess. We can decide what our life means, what the universe means. That's freedom as choice and self determination. Can I suggest, though, there's an older biblical sense of freedom, which isn't freedom as choice primarily, but rather freedom as the disciplining of desire so as to make the achievement of the good first possible, and then effortless. Let me say that again, I'll give you some more examples too. Freedom is not so much choice, but the disciplining of desire so as to make the achievement of the good first possible, and then effortless. So, I stand before you as a relatively free speaker of English. I can say pretty much whatever I want to say in English. Those who have studied a foreign language know what I'm going to talk about here. When I was over in France doing my doctoral work, and I was struggling to speak the French language, what I felt very often was unfree. You know what I mean, if you struggle with a foreign language. Very often in, in ordinary conversation or in the seminar room, I knew just what I wanted to say, but I couldn't say it. My skill in French was so limited, I couldn't say what I wanted to say, and I felt unfree. Now, how did I become a free speaker of English, and eventually a relatively free speaker of French? Oh, by just speaking any way I want. Just choosing to talk any way I felt like it. Well, of course not. I became a free speaker of English by submitting myself to a whole series of teachers and masters by listening to gifted speakers of English, by attending to grammar and syntax, vocabulary, et cetera, et cetera. You see how on the first reading of freedom, the law is the enemy, because the law is restricting my self-determination. Now, maybe I'll accept the law grudgingly as a necessary evil, like traffic laws. You know, I'll accept them, but I'm not happy about them or like the tax code. I'll accept it, but I'm not really happy about it. But now, now, in regard to the second type of freedom, freedom for excellence, do you see how law is now the friend of freedom, not the enemy of it? What made me free to speak English? Precisely all those laws and disciplines and rigor and syntax. Who's the freest golfer ever? I'm speaking now as the Masters is going on. I'm a big fan of golf. I'll try to watch the highlights tonight of the Masters. Who's the freest golfer ever? No, maybe Jack Nicklaus, but probably Tiger Woods. Because he just played any way he wanted to. Golfers know this, don't you? Go out there with a club, hey, just swing any way you feel like it. How's that gonna work out? No, 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 golf is filled with laws, rules. Demands. Do we hate them? No, no. If we internalize those laws, they enable us now to make the golf swing we want to make. Law is not the enemy of freedom, do you see? But the friend of freedom. Think for a second of a great biblical image of King David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant as he brings it into Jerusalem. That's seen in Second Samuel. David dancing with a reckless abandon before the law of the Lord can you imagine anybody in our society dancing in front of the tax code no no the law sure I'll accept it grudgingly but I don't really like it it's a restriction of my freedom but that's modern freedom biblical freedom you bet you'll dance before the law because the law is what makes you free See, Paul is operating out of that conception when he says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free and, and I am the slave of Christ Jesus. You see how that paradox makes no sense on modern grounds but makes perfect sense on biblical grounds. In the measure that I become the slave of Christ I become free because now I'm Free to be the person God wants me to be. The more I internalize the law of Christ, the more I internalize the Word of God, the more I become myself. Now, go back to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning. Adam and Eve at play in the field of the Lord, the church fathers saw that as God's desire for us to be fully alive. Eat of all the trees except the one. See, but attend first to the permission. This great, rangy permission they received. Augustine saw that as politics and art and the social life and the life in the city. Relationship, friendship, conversation. All that makes life rich. Yes, that's what God wants for us. But there's one tree we shouldn't eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil why why because that's that first kind of freedom i was talking about that means i decide what my life is about i choose i determine myself i grasp at the prerogative that belongs to god alone now listen now this is what the bible keeps telling us over and over again what happens when we do that we live in the little narrow space of our own egotism in dante's divine comedy satan is not in fire satan is in ice much better image you see because he's stuck He's stuck in the little narrow space of his own little kingdom, of what he can imagine, his projects, his plans, his freedom. Ho hum. That's the point. What does Paul say in Ephesians? There's a power already at work in you that can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. Now we're talking. What's that but the Holy Spirit now? that can do infinitely more than i can imagine for myself in my little world of freedom and self-determination joseph campbell said most people find when they've reached the top of the ladder of success it's up against the wrong wall (laughs) there's our problem isn't it is we live in the little narrow space of the ego drama that's the drama that you're writing about yourself that you're producing, you're directing and above all you're starring in so here's the Father Robert Barron show on the road in New York now and here's my nice supporting cast, see that's the problem with us sinners, is deep down we think we're gone. we grasp at the knowledge of the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we grasp at God's prerogative and it makes our lives boring Now, the Church Fathers love this little relationship. Eve, Ava in Latin, E-V-A, is reversed by the angels' Ave at the Annunciation. Ave Maria, Hail Mary. The Ave reverses the Ava. Mary is the new Eve. Why? Because she doesn't grasp at her own privilege, her own prerogative. She doesn't live in the narrow space of the ego-drama but she says, be it done to me according to thy word. There's a power already at work in you that can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. Surrender to it. Mary surrendered to it. Did she know what her surrender meant? Uh Uh-uh, not totally she entered into the adventure of grace and that makes her the archetype of a new humanity a new way of responding to God she saw the law of God not as a imposition and restriction but she saw it as the means by which she would come fully alive and that's why Jesus calls her woman the new eve And that's why Hans Urs von Balthasar, our current Pope's favorite theologian, can say, Mary provides the matrix. She's the mater, the mother, of all forms of the Christian life. Everybody in this room, operating within the matrix of Mary's great yes, because she knows her life is not about her. She knows she's on a spiritual adventure. That's why Jesus entrusts the whole church to her.
0: Holy Mary, you were conceived without the stain of Adam's sin. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. In faith, you conceived in your womb God. And man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed Virgin, true Mother of the Eternal Word, your own heart was pierced by a sword even while you did the will of the Father. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed Virgin, you stood at the foot of our Savior's cross. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. You were assumed into heaven as a foreshadowing of our own destiny. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me. Almighty Father, your Son Jesus suffered the depths of human suffering in his agony on the cross. Strengthen our faith so that, like Mary, we may ponder the mystery of our redemption and persevere until you call us to yourself. We ask this through the same Christ our Lord. Won't you please stand and join in singing at the cross for station keeping? And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (S)
2: Thank you. Thank
1: My God, why have you forsaken me? We've come with this word from the cross to a very dark place. In fact, to the darkest place imaginable. From the first three words of the cross, we were able to derive some light insights about forgiveness, about happiness, about freedom. But now, with this word, it seems we're just stopped short. This is a Jesus who seems simply out of control. A Jesus who's entered into that very darkest place, meaninglessness. We all know that, that beyond physical suffering, there's a far greater suffering. Because whatever your physical suffering, if you can put it in the context of meaning, you can endure it. But when meaning itself is lost, it seems as though everything's lost. Whenever I hear this word, I think now of Matthias Grunewald's great masterpiece, the Eisenheim altarpiece. When I was filming the Catholicism series, one of our stops was in Colmar, it's in France, where the Eisenheim altarpiece is on display. You've probably seen a reproduction of it, or maybe you've been there, but Grunewald gives us, I think, the most powerful and theologically rich depiction of the crucifixion in Western art. Because there's Jesus not serenely in control, but his limbs twisted out of shape in pain, his head covered in this this impossibly painful crown of thorns. But the worst part of the painting for me, the most powerful, is that Jesus' mouth is simply agape in silent agony. It seems to be a Christ who's just uttered those words, God, my God, why have you abandoned me? About 10 years ago, I was um, preaching in the parish. And I finished a homily on, on God's providence, God's goodness, how God's at work in the world. So after Mass, a man came up to me, a man in his late 60s. He said, Father, I'm on a quest, and your homily didn't help. I said, what's your quest? He said, well, I've got two granddaughters. They both have a disease that's so mysterious that even the doctors at the Mayo Clinic can't understand quite what it is. All they know is that first the person goes blind and then she dies from the disease. My older granddaughter, he said, is already blind. And the younger one cries out at night in fear as she contemplates her future. Father, how do you explain that? That was one Sunday morning after mass. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, that wasn't an atheist talking to me, that was someone just at mass, that was a believer, but who was feeling that pain. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Back in my first assignment when I was in the parish, I read in the paper the story about a policeman who inexplicably, to everyone, got up one night, took his service revolver, and with it shot his own son to death, and then killed himself. So I read that terrible story in the paper. Well, about two days later, I was in the local funeral parlor attending the wake of a parishioner. I came out from the wake, and I saw in the adjoining room two coffins, which, of course, is an unusual sight. And I looked up, and I saw the name, and I said, Ah, it's the policeman and his son. Now, I didn't know them at all. I don't think they were Catholic, but I, I just felt some obligation to go in i had of course my roman collar on and i went into the room and over to me came the wife and mother and we didn't exchange any words all she did was this she went is it to say father explain this to me god my god why have you abandoned me you know, the new atheists are on the uh, prowl today and I don't think their argument is very good because I think the only really telling argument against God's existence is this one. John Stuart Mill in the 19th century put it this way. If God exists, there really couldn't be evil. Because God we hear is omnibenevolent, he's omniscient and omnipotent. Well, if he's omnibenevolent, he'd want to do something about evil. If he's omnipotent, he could do something about evil. If he's omniscient, he'd know all about evil. Therefore, there wouldn't be any evil if God exists. Thomas Aquinas, many centuries before, put it even more pithily. In one of his objections to God's existence, he said, if one of two contraries be infinite, the other would be destroyed. But God is called the infinite good. Therefore, there should be no evil. Now, can I submit to you, friends, those are darn good arguments. As I say, the only ones I think are really powerful against the claim that God exists. A lot of us feel in our heart of hearts the agony of those words. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Does the Bible know about this? you bet it does go back to the Old Testament the book of Job is the most powerful biblical wrestling with this problem in the Old Testament you know the story of course righteous Job is beset with every possible suffering in one fell swoop he loses home, livelihood money, family, health everything His wife, Mrs. Job, has one of the great one-liners in the Bible, not very pastorally helpful. She says to Job, Well, curse God and die. Not a helpful pastoral strategy. Job's friends come along. I put friends in quotes. And they say, Well, Job, I mean, come on. You must have done something to deserve all this suffering. You must have offended God somehow. Job says, No. He knows he's righteous. And then... In one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible, Job dismisses his friends, and he calls God himself into the dock. Like that grandfather, like that mother and wife that I met, he calls God into the dock. Explain yourself to me. Why have you allowed this suffering? Look in the 38th chapter of Job. I tell my students at the seminary, memorize that chapter. It's God's longest speech in the whole Bible. God speaks out of the desert whirlwind, beautiful image. The desert whirlwind that's kicking up the dust and getting in Job's eyes because he can't see. And God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I instructed the sun where to rise? Where were you when I told the hail and the snow and the ice?" God then takes Job on this great tour of the whole cosmos, revealing to him all of its intricacy, all of its strangeness, all of its mystery. Where were you? You know everything, Job. You tell me. At the climax of the speech, God points out to Job two of his creatures Behemoth and Leviathan Scholars think it might have meant a a Crocodile, maybe a hippopotamus, we don't know But God sings the praises of Behemoth and Leviathan These two creatures And he says to Job How wonderful they are These two creatures whom I made Just as I made you You see the point Job, you think your life's about you. And you're seeing your suffering from the standpoint of your own life. But Job, you are part of an infinitely complex drama, painting, story that I'm composing. That includes all of space and all of time. Yes, Job, you are suffering. But the sense that it makes occurs within this infinitely complex drama that God is writing. Think for a second of this great cathedral, all of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Look at in all of its darks and lights, all of its play of color, all the intricacy of its design. Suppose now that this cathedral represents God's great work across all of space and all of time. We see how all of it fits together harmoniously. Suppose I were to look down there at that corner of this podium and were to say to you on the basis of that vision, St. Patrick's Cathedral is the ugliest cathedral I've ever seen. St. Patrick's Cathedral means nothing there's no harmony or order to it how much do we see of god's great composition one tiny swath of space and time it's a bit like taking one sentence out of one paragraph of war and peace and reading that one sentence and saying this novel makes no sense Maybe the sentence you read is a very dark and troubling sentence. How much do we read of God's great novel? Here's an image from William James, the American philosopher. James would work all day at his desk and then the end of the day his dog would come in to visit with his master. The dog would come in happily wagging his tail and he would take in everything in the office. He would see the desk covered in papers He'd see the shelves filled with books. He'd see the globe in the corner. He'd see all of it, but understand none of it. And if William James endeavored to explain to the dog what all that meant, all these papers are filled with symbols that signal to my mind ideas. The books are collections of further semiotic signs that uh, trigger to my mind certain ideas. See that globe in the corner? It's a depiction of the planet we all live on that's hurtling through space. How much would the dog understand? None of it. It occurred to William James, he saw everything but got almost nothing. Now, now, imagine how we're seen by a higher power. Will you think that we see it all yeah well maybe we do but we get almost none of it and what if an angel or God himself endeavored to explain it to us even in principle he couldn't make sense of it do you have these in New York I wonder um, about 20 years ago these kind of mean ladybugs blew into Chicago I think from China or something ladybugs when I was a kid were just kind of these uh, harmless things, but these new ladybugs sort of blew in and they come during the fall and they invade all of our homes, our our space. Well, I was in my office one day. I was working on a book of theology and I saw up in the corner of my uh, window on the screen five of these little ladybugs. It was kind of a cold day, so they were huddled together. In the course of my time in the office, they moved maybe a quarter of an inch in different directions. Next day, I came back, continuing my work on my theological book, and I saw the ladybugs had clustered again in that little corner, and now they moved an inch, perhaps. I thought, big day for you today, you're moving an inch on my screen. I remember that day thinking, with infinite condescension, what stupid little thing. Here I am in my office, working on my books of theology. And look at those stupid little creatures. A big day for them is moving one inch on my screen. And then it occurred to me like a grace from God. How I must be seen by the angels. I who think I'm so exalted in writing my important books, and here I am in my office. To an angel, I would look like one of those silly little ladybugs crawling along the screen. Part of the the rationale of the book of Job is don't presume to think that you can pronounce on the meaningfulness of the universe of your life because what we grasp of God's purposes is so small okay fair enough true enough, illuminating enough yeah, yeah, I think all that makes some sense, sheds some light but does it solve the problem of that grandfather I talked about Would sharing these ideas solve the problem for that wife and mother? I doubt it. Then we listen to this word again. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Who is saying that? Not just a suffering human being. But according to our faith, the one who says that is the very son of God. The very Son of God, out of love for us, went into our darkest place. Went into that place where we are most afraid, where we are most confounded. Entered into it so fully that Chesterton could say, on the cross, it's as though God became an atheist. To grasp that, friends, is to get very close to the dizzying paradox of our faith. On the cross, it's as though God became an atheist, meaning the Son of God, out of love, went into that place that frightens us the most. That's the ultimate answer. Because now, God himself brings light to that darkest place.
0: As we remember the passion of our Lord, let us join ourselves with him as he prayed the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are far from my prayer, from the words of my cry. O God, I cry out by day. And you answer not by night and there is no relief for me Lamb of God we take away the sins of the world have mercy on us. I am a worm not a man the scorn of me despised by the people all who see me scoff at me. They mock me with parted lips. They wag their heads. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. I am like water poured out. All my bones are racked. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. They look on and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and divinity. And wisdom and strength and honor and blessing. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lord Jesus Christ, you experienced fully the weakness of our humanity and were even betrayed by your friends. By your blessed passion, Be our comfort, our protection, and our strength in our weakness. You who live and reign forever and ever. The fifth word. After this, aware that everything was now finished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine. So they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it to his mouth.
1: one of the most clarifying spiritual truths is this God does not need us it's true, God is God God is utterly perfect in himself utterly happy in himself Vatican Council 1 clarified that in the 19th century God did did not make the world out of need but rather to manifest and share his glory One of the prefaces for Daily Mass has this theologically magnificent line. You have no need of our praise, yet our desire to thank you is itself your gift. Our prayer of thanksgiving adds nothing to your greatness, but makes us grow in grace. Expand that, our being adds nothing to God's greatness. Our existence doesn't enhance the existence of God. God doesn't need us. Now, why is that good news? It's good news because it means the whole world has been loved into being. Thomas Aquinas said that to love is to will the good of the other as other. That's a very penetrating definition, by the way. It's not sentimental. Love, he says, is an act of the will. I want your good. Now, most of us sinners operate this way, don't we? I'll be kind to you that you might be kind to me. I'll be just to you that you might be just in return. But see, that isn't love. That's just a kind of indirect egotism. To love is a truly ecstatic act because I break out of the confines of my own egotism and I want your good. Well, can you see, friends, that's all God can do because God has no needs. Therefore the very existence of the world is a sign of God's love. Every breath we draw is a sign that we're being loved. So if God doesn't need us, how come God gives us so many laws? Why does he make so many demands upon us? Why does he require us, for example, to come and pray? not because he needs any of that but he hears the paradox because we need it Thomas Aquinas said that the worship of God doesn't benefit God it worships those who engage in it we become better and rightly ordered precisely through our worship of God now why? Why? because he hears how it works God loves us into being Everything we have, everything we are, is a result of God's love. Now, when you return that to God in love, you find the divine life in you increasing 30, 60, and 100-fold. What's the problem? The problem is, when I receive the divine life as a gift, and Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received, right? Everything's a gift. When I receive that and then hang on to it, it's mine, my possession, my life. What happens is then you lose the little you think you have. Remember that formula from the Gospel? It's absolute common sense spiritual physics, that principle. If you try to hang on to the divine life, which is a gift, it will disappear because it only exists in gift form what's the right formula when you've received the divine life as a gift give it as a gift and you'll find it increasing in you do you see how the divine life is had only on the fly as I receive it I give it and then I get more that's why John Paul formulated this principle as the law of the gift here's how it works your being increases in the measure that you give it away now young people here listen to me on this it's the key to your joy it's the key to life you want to be happy you want your being to increase give it away the one thing you should never do is hang on to it think for a second of the prodigal son story Father, give me my share coming to me. Remember? Three times he reminds the Father, me, me, mine, mine, it's mine. So the Father gives it to him. What happens? He fritters it away. That's the way it works in spiritual physics. If you try to hang on to the divine life as your own little possession, you will lose it. Only when he returns to that great source does that prodigal son find life think of that wonderful story in the Old Testament of the widow of Zarephath it's in the cycle of readings about Elijah the prophet it's a time of drought in Israel and Elijah is sent to the widow of Zarephath and he asked for some food and she says well we have enough here for one more meal for me and my son and then we're going to die Elijah says make me a cake now, I've always found that something like out of Mel Brooks. You know, I, I've just told you I'm dying here. I've got enough for one last meal. You want a cake? Yeah, make me a cake. And what happens, of course, the flour and the oil do not run out. It's making this same spiritual point. When you give the divine life you've received as a gift, it increases in you. There are 5,000 people to be fed here. What do you have? Well, we got a couple of loaves and, and five fish. I mean, we have nothing. Give them to me, says Christ, and they are multiplied unto the feeding of the world. That's the way it works in spiritual physics. Now, I want you to think about the story of the woman at the well who comes to that well, as Jesus says, every day, and you get thirsty again, don't you? St. Augustine commented, that's concupiscent desire I spoke about it just a little while ago wealth pleasure power honor I come to those wells day after day and I drink but I'm not satisfied what does Jesus say I want to give you water bubbling up in you to eternal life I want to give you water that will satisfy you eternally but listen now how does he get into that conversation with her Do you remember how she sits down by the well, and Jesus says, give me something to drink. I'm thirsty. What's he doing?
2: K-A-T-H 910-A.